If you choose not to follow your absolute purpose for the sake of the practical aspects of life, which makes sense, you will suffer years of stagnation and pain. Face those fears, make those tough decisions, follow your purpose, what Joseph Campbell called your sacred fire, your sacred bliss, and the years of stagnation will be greatly minimalized. So wouldn't it be worth it to suffer for two years rather than a lifetime? Welcome to Leaders Labyrinth. I am your host, Michael Grant. We take you on a journey with resilient individuals who share how they have achieved the extraordinary. This show is designed to empower you to take the lead in your life's quest through the wisdom of our leaders, inflicting truth, possibility, and fueling your hearts with passion of what sets your souls on fire to becoming your best version of self. Benjamin Franklin, one of the world's most iconic polymaths for science, inventions, politics, philosophy, and one of the founding fathers of the United States once said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Today's leader in our labyrinth is an award-winning musician and composer, an entrepreneur and business strategist. He has published over 400 theatrical works, composing scores for 20th Century Fox and Sony Pictures. His work has been performed by the LA Philharmonic Symphony. He has been featured in the Los Angeles Times. He is also the recipient of numerous awards, decorative scrolls, and honors. This gentleman has been twice commissioned by His Holiness, Pope John Paul II, to compose music for the Vatican. It is my humble honor to introduce to you, Christopher! Caliendo. Welcome. We are here in the labyrinth with the marvelous, award-winning musician, award-winning composer, entrepreneur, and business strategist, Christopher Caliendo, here at his home in San Dimas. Thank you, Christopher, for opening up your home, for allowing us to dive into the labyrinth today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for allowing me to be on the show, Michael. It's a real privilege. Fantastic. Wonderful. Wonderful. How are you feeling today, Christopher? Feel great. Went swimming. I'm ready. <laughs> I love your energy. Your energy is so, it's, it's so uh, engaging. And uh, I remember when we met in February at a uh, business cigar mixer in, in Thousand Oaks, California, uh, the first thing you said to me, you said, hello, my name's Christopher. What's your passion? Mm. No one's ever approached me that way. And that really told me a lot about kind of who you are and the way you look at life. And I thought that was pretty profound. And that struck a chord with me and you and I had a great conversation and you shared with me some pretty fascinating things about your journey, um, in, in your particular field of expertise in music. And, um, you know, you, you've, from my research, I've learned that you've had an outstanding career in the music world from publishing over 400 theatrical works, composing projects for 20th century Fox, Sony pictures, the recipient of numerous awards, honors, being appointed by Bob Hope to perform at his uh, 90th birthday and having your work performed by the LA Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl and then being appointed twice by His Holiness Pope John Paul II to perform at the Vatican. You also perform masterclass motivational seminars to large universities. You have also uh, have an online training course called Octivate. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Octivate. Octivate yeah. to educate musicians on how to succeed in business. And that is the short list of notable achievements. My first question to you is, what would you say is the source of your fuel that feeds this fire to expand your talent and impact the world 
as you have with your music and knowledge? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I, right away, I'm thinking of my father. Um, my dad is um, an extraordinary person. Um, he is a product of a high school education, uh, was drafted into Korea and served the country the first two years. I think we lost about 72,000 Americans those two years. And uh, my father received two Purple Hearts for bravery. And um, so I was born in New York to a large Italian-American family. And my father, whether it was the military or a combination of his genetics and his incredible self-will and love of self-education was something that I just grasped. It's, um, and being the only son of a large Italian family with four sisters, uh, maybe there was some kind of competitive nature, I, I don't know, but I just know that I recognized at a young age, and my father did, that I had a gift for music. It started at four and a half with a guitar. And the way my father tells the story is he handed me the guitar and um, at four and a half years old, and I dismissed it, you know, I wasn't interested in the guitar. And then six months later, he tried again, because if you look at the, I guess, the line, the family pedigree on both sides, my mother's side, there was mandolin players in Italy or guitar players. And uh, when he handed the guitar back, I had memorized the one, four, five chord. And my father was really struck dumb with stupefaction. You know, he was like, that's unusual, you know, but he didn't know what to do with it. I mean, he's a mailman, put a mailman, you know, a bag in his back right after the, uh, after the you know, war and uh, worked at a mobile gas station for many, many years to support a lot of people. So, um, you know, it, so it was great that he was so interested in so many things. Today, as a retired man at 91 years old, he's got like 10 or 12 avocations and hobbies that he, that they're not just hobbies, they're like semi-professional hobbies from oil painting to gardening to developing his own, his own uh, photography. I mean, there's just so many interests he has. And I think that that love for self-education and knowledge as a result of not going to college, while his brothers did go to college and took advantage at a time when a college degree really meant something, um, it just took its hold on me. And to this day, I'm terribly driven by so much curiosity and love for so many things. So the way your father lived his life and the particular interests that he had professionally and personally impacted the way you felt about the way you wanted to live your life, it seems like. So that had a very big influence on you from a very young age. I think so. I mean, I think that's the umbilical cord that mm. was never disattached. You know, I just uh, have this extreme love for my father and, and mother, and i um, very fortunate that they're still together after 68 years of marriage. And every time, whenever I finish a piece of music, dad's the first one to get it, always, to this day. That's beautiful. That's Amen. amazing. That's amazing. And so you picked up a guitar at four years old, you said? Four and a half, yeah. At four and a half, and you mm -hmm. never put it down, huh? Uh, not to this day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's my second wife. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, beautiful story. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. So if someone comes to you with a project, um, you mentioned to me that there's a project you're working on for 20th Century Fox. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about it, but, but, uh, but in any case, when someone comes to you with a project, uh, like a film or a show or something to do with entertainment, what, how do you approach that in terms of constructing a melody or some kind of harmony to complement the film or the project? Do you have a process that you follow or is it just, does it just come to you naturally? Michael, that's a huge question. It's really a huge question because 
I, I have to be very specific to answer that, even though it could take on a, a much larger picture. Uh, for example, the most recent project is this project with the, uh, the Phoenix Brass Collective. They are the brass musicians and percussion percussionists for, from the Phoenix Symphony and local professionals. And when they came to me for, Jeff Cuomo, the conductor, came to me for a proposal, the composer today can't just write an abstract piece of music and say, get it performed. You, you have to think differently today to succeed and have the shareholders just say, oh, without question, this is a great idea, let's do it. So you, you have to work with the community and market it. So when I was approached by them, I called my friend Gary Gianni, the great painter for the Game of Thrones for George R. R. Martin's books uh, called Song of Ice and Fire. And, and Gary's paintings were just reviewed, uh, just uh, showcased in the Norman Rockwell Museum in Manhattan. So we're dealing with a, a major known painter and very dear friend of mine. And so I called Gary and I said, well, why don't we take six of your paintings and have them uh, superimposed you know, on a scrim above the orchestra and I'll create musical movement to the static images. And we submitted that to the shareholders and uh, to the board of directors and they slam dunk, you know, because we're, we're piggybacking on a very recognizable hit TV series, you know, Game of Thrones, which is the product of the, of the books written by George R. R. Martin, the paintings of Gary, another art form, literature, art, and music. And so my process there was, if, if you know Game of Thrones, it's a middle age period with a touch of fantasy. So how do you write music that sounds anachronistic? It comes from the middle ages but also sounds modern because it deals with dragons. So the challenge <laughs> was the vocabulary had to sound like it combined a touch of fantasy. And so the process, getting to your question, is what I do is I go to the piano and I'll play a collection of notes and different collections of notes at the same time. And it, when I hear the emerging sound, I can detect within the, the camaraderie of those notes if I can hear the the desk, you know, uh, the the, des the descant horns of the Middle Age period, um, and whether or not it could capture that style of music that we think emanated from that period, and it has enough contemporary uh, overtones to it that I can use that material. And when I came up with the pitch collection, then I translate it into twelve different tone centers, and I make sure that. Every single note comes from those pitch collections. So ultimately the experience is, it sounds like the music comes from the same source. I, I don't want to get too too educated and deep in the process of musical education, but I hope that makes sense to you and your listeners. Well, what I got from that is you start with the um, the research of the particular time period or, mm. or the place in the world where that music is going to complement that type of culture. And is that, would you say that that's kind of where you start that research? Yeah, the research is yeah. essential. Yeah, absolutely. Critical. Right. So how did you get started in the music business? What was your first professional gig? Oh, gee. Uh, believe it or not, it was uh, writing, writing my, the music for Dallas, for CBS. It, it was, it was you know, I have to say in terms of commercial music, um, I won the, the Henry Mancini Film Scholarship. Uh, at UCLA when I was studying for my master's of fine arts. And that navigated me to Henry Mancini, introducing me to Jerry Immel, the composer of the theme of Dallas, who at the time, when I visited his home in Sherman Oaks, needed another orchestrator for a third show he picked up called... Uh, 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 I'm, 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 I'm forgetting now, sorry, Lee Horsley. Um, it's a Western. 
Yeah. I, I, Jerry was tired of writing all the action cues. So my first real opportunity was writing an action cue and uh, at Lorimar, which was on the lot, MGM lot where we recorded Dallas. And uh, it was a, a very powerful and anxiety-ridden experience, but I got past it. And uh, the great Danny, wow. Danny Wallen, who created the recording studio at Paramount and Fox, um, he was an icon engineer. He was my first engineer, and Patty Fidelibus was my first contractor. And it was, it was the big time. I mean, and it was really fun because when I went to Lorimar on that blessed day, most of the musicians were my teachers at UCLA. <laughs> they were there playing in the studios, you know, making extra money as, as recording musicians. But um, par- Paradise, the Western is called Paradise. So Jerry picked up the show Paradise, starring the handsome Lee Horsley. He was a wonderful person in real life. Wonderful, very nice man. Uh, six foot three, tall, handsome. And, um, and it was Paradise on a show called The Ghost Dance that we got nominated for an uh, Emmy Award. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. And, and how did the people from Dallas actually find you? Did you submit for that role or, or for that particular project? No, that's, uh, you know, when, when Mancini introduced me to Gerald Immel, Gerald invited me to his home in Sherman Oaks. And I'll never forget that because here I am driving to Sherman Oaks in a, in a, in a Ford Pinto, I think I had at the time because I was a student. <laughs> and uh, Ann Immel, his wife, was a marvelous writer. She was a script writer for Hallmark Hall of Fame. She's a very literate writer. And she's walking down the stairs while Jerry's playing a cassette of my music on a cassette recorder on top of his piano. And the music is emanating. And it's all stuff I did in college. It's not like professionally recorded. Um, but Anne comes down and goes, whose music is that? And she saw me. And Jerry said, this is Christopher Kelly, the composer. And she adulated me. God bless her. But she said, oh, it's wonderful. And I, I was, it really took all the stress out of me. Because it was, it's nerve-wracking. Because you're at the home of an icon composer for TV. But that's how I got the job. Was Jerry just hired me right there and then. He said, I want you to be an orchestrator on my shows. Incredible. I went home on a high. Incredible. Was that the stepping stone to kind of catapulting your career in that music industry? Absolutely. Yeah. The Mancini Scholarship to CBS to Gerald Himmel's home to the opportunity of a lifetime when he picked up a third show and he, he lost an orchestrator. One of his orchestrators was Bruce Broughton. Bruce Broughton went on to score Silverado and, you know, he graduated from working for Jerry in those days, you had a system. You know, you had an apprenticeship system. All, this, all the studios had a music um, um, school. You, you would train how to be a film composer, and you would get in through an elite like a Henry Mancini. So it was, and I loved it back then. Today, with the advent of electronics, every, every so-called composer has an electronic studio, and you couldn't, uh, with all respect to them, I mean, for obvious reasons, without going to school now at a conservatory and learning how to be a bona fide classical a composer of all styles of music and being trained to play more than one instrument well and having that knowledge uh today now you press a button on a piano and you know it emanates a sound and you're you're considered a composer but that's the, that's progress that's the way it is today but back then you had to have you, there was an apprenticeship system and i i greatly admire that because you know it's like a, it's like today any, anyone can can write a book but back in the back in the day if you wanted to write a book you had to submit it to a publisher and they had editors and, uh, you know, various people who would read these books and make a choice on erudition whether that book would sell or not. It was a process. Um, but today it's just very different. It's changed dramatically. As a career as a career musician, meaning somebody who wants to be in the orchestra space or work in the entertainment space, um, how, how prevalent is that career path today 
because the time where you got in was a different era and, and things have advanced so much. Would you say it's talent more so than, than, um, relationships? No, no, no. I mean, I wish the world ran on talent. Mm. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, no, it's, it, the world is always run on relationships. Well, you know, when I work with businessmen, you know, in my other career, I, I ask them all the time, you know, what is the most important aspect of business? And they will always tell you relationships. It's the important aspect of any business. We weren't taught in the conservatory to network. No one taught us the, the power, the importance, the value of networking. I always thought my talent would navigate my progress. And what I, what I wish I had done more back in those days was network more. You know, I just had this great feeling of confidence that in my world, between my ears, you know, that my music would progress. And it did. It did. There's no question it did. I'm just thinking I think things could be even more different if I networked more. You know? It's so true. It's so true. The yeah. opportunities become more abundant when you know the right people at, at the right companies at the right time, doing the right projects. Absolutely. And um, think, think of how vulnerable the space is. I mean, you're a filmmaker, right? You're a director. It takes you a year to make a movie. Now you're going to trust it to one composer. That's vulnerability. And I, I don't blame them. I mean, they have to make that choice judiciously. Unfortunately, much of that choice is now dependent upon a composer who maybe wrote the music for a film. The film was a really bad film, but it made lots of money. That's a good composer because the film made a lot of money. And it's the way it runs. Interesting. The devil's in the details, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, there's, there's no path to success that's a straight line. No. So what would you say were some of the obstacles you encountered in your professional career or lessons that you learned uh, in the professional music world that come to mind? Wow. Well, my, my biggest challenge, my adversity is myself. I, I love so many things. When I worked with Henry Mancini, he would tell me, diversify yourself. And some of the best musicians like Sheridan Stokes, um, remarkable flutist for 50 years. He was the number one flute player in the Hollywood Recording Studios. And he would say, Christopher, diversify yourself, conduct, publish music, play the guitar, perform, sell CDs. Because by the end of the month, you'll collect checks from the, all these various disciplines, even though it takes a lot of effort to keep those disciplines up. And you'll see that you'll pay your fixed and variable costs on a monthly basis. And I think that diversification was something I, 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 I had those skills because I was conservatory trained. I mean, I, I have a very strong background in music, so, it, and plus I have a natural curious mind, so I, when I was a young guitar player, by 11 I was hearing music, and it's, I said, you know, this makes sense, why don't I do this? <laughs> and then, you know, I started out in film and television, and all of a sudden I got commissioned by Pope John Paul II, you know, the Vatican, well, why don't I try sacred music? But I'm an Italian guitar player, and I love tarantellas. What do tango sound like? I mean, I was just naturally curious, and I think, I think in anything, focus brings velocity, if I stayed just in film, maybe I'd be, you know, happier. I don't know, because I, I just stayed in one aspect of music making. But I'm very happy the dividends from learning different disciplines and pursuing an original journey are, are more spiritual and they're more important to me. And they always have been. So, you know, my, 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 my uncle, I don't know if he could say, you know, if you just stuck with playing the French horn... You would have been fine. You would be fine, you know. It's like, no, well, no, I just wasn't interested in, you know, I played the French horn in, 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 my, uh, uh, in my formal education. But it just, 
it just lost interest because my mind wanted to go somewhere else. So I think there's this theme of exodus in my life, mental, spiritual exodus, musical exodus, and just being naturally curious. I, I like to exercise lots of different disciplines. That has helped me create an original story for myself, and it's also been a detriment, I think. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, man. So how would you describe discipline? If someone asked you, what does discipline mean, Christopher? Well, for instance, in any day, I think it's important to, to list down the, the disciplines that you need to do every day to go to bed saying, I have fulfilled adequate self-esteem today. I, I have, I'm not restless because I forgot to do that, do that, do that. Now, now what does that mean? I mean, everyone has different disciplines. Um, but there is something about the most wildly important goals that you are, you need to be conscious of in your path. Once you have chosen a purpose, you have to recognize that there is something called the whirlwind that extracts you away from the rudder of your purpose. And your purpose is always at least two wildly most important goals. So I think as human beings, we're so distracted today, the kineticism of Western civilization, I mean, uh, the accrual of wealth, you know, wherever we are, uh, Americans are so hooked up on themselves. You know, you look at surgery and cosmetics and the trillions of dollars spent on self-image and Facebook, we always have our best photo of ourselves. And, you know, that's a whirlwind. That's going to take you away from the chassis, the topography of your soul that beckons out ultimately as you age. And you look back and you say, what have I done with the various disciplines or lack of disciplines and how have they affected the dividends that are more important um, in the aging process? We're eternally youthful here in America. We don't think about the aging process. So you have to be able to know what your wildly most important goals are. They have to be practical so they do can pay your fixed and variable cost. And if you're prone to marriage and children, you ha you're responsible for them. And you m definitely have to be aware of the whirlwinds, the things that distract and take you away from those goals. Those, you know, binge watching television may be for some people, addictions may be for other people. But if you can keep those two things conscious and directed and focused, uh, I think you'll be fine. That's a beautiful answer. And there's so much richness in that description that we could unpack. And, and one of the things I want to touch on um, that you talked about understanding your purpose, your goals, hmm. um, someone like yourself who works these temporary projects, but you have deadlines and you have stakeholders, you have investors, expectations are on the table. How do you approach kind of your goal framework or do you have a framework for meeting your, your particular short-term or long-term goals? Uh, well, because they're so varied, you, each one has its own, you know, uh, time management considerations. I, I, I remember going to 20th Century Fox once on a, on a massive project. And every time I go, I, I see the executives, they're younger and younger. It seems like they're in their <laughs> 20s and they get these tremendous positions and they're so young. But generally, if you walk into 20th Century Fox, for example, or Sony Pictures, and you see eight executives at a table, you know you got the job. And that's, a, that's a signal. But what they do is they say, you know, we've got these five projects, can you do them? So the only thing I bring to these meetings is a calculator. And I go, how, much, how many minutes of music and when do you want the project by? So how many minutes of music divided by how many days do I have? And if it is more than 10 minutes, 
of music per day. <laughs> so that's how I time manage the time frame of a particular project. Because I know health-wise, you know, you're writing 10 minutes of fully orchestrated music a day. That's, that's a good 15-hour day. You know, I mean, to put music, to write music at that pace is pretty considerable. Um, when you're dealing with multiple projects at the same time, it, Steve Bender, who is a, is, a, is a very dear friend, who I think he directed uh, Michael Jackson for the 1993 Super Bowl halftime special. We're a specialty director of, wow. of yeah, he's a big, big, very, he directed Elvis Presley's 1968 comeback special. Uh, a real specialty director in the Hall of Fame. But I asked him once, I said, what are you doing? I mean, how do you begin, you know, directing a, a Super Bowl halftime special, right? And he said, priorities. I only do what I have to do that given moment. And I think that was the best advice I ever got. It was like, okay, if you're overwhelmed, just know, just take the, the most important time calendar sensitive events and focus on those and make a, make a list that's time calendar sensitive and approach each one at a time. And you'll, you'll, it'll lessen your anxiety. It'll put you in, back in control. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds so, so simple, but so effective too. Yeah. Are, are you someone who advocates for the work-life approach of balance to life in general? A lot of people are having conversations and kind of, uh, I guess, adoptions around balancing, like not, not overworking, but when you have projects like you do and you have deadlines and mm -hmm. things like that, you probably are pulling pretty late nights often, I would imagine. Um, do you think that's a real thing for you, like this work-life balance thing, or, or do you even think about that? Or um, how, how would you kind of describe what that looks like for you? I think we see we saw a revolution in human resources starting right after the Great Recession when we realized that most Americans, a high percentage, over 70%, were unhappy with their workforce, what they were doing with their lives. There's a lot of reasons for this. But the more important salient points are that they recognized that human beings were the most important assets to their company. So what changes took place were, what can we do to keep those assets? And I'll never forget going to a... Uh, a, uh, a meeting uh, in City of Industry was a manufacturer's council meeting. The audience were all 60, 70, 60, 50, 60 year old men and women entrepreneurs who were ready to retire when the Great Recession hit. And we all discovered religion then. You know, the value of our homes sunk, the 401k plan sunk, and they had to stay at work. So consequently, the, lead, the speaker was from uh, Claremont College Business School. 41, much younger, telling them the revolution's taking place in human resources and what they have to do to keep their employees working. And he was talking about getting, knowing what birthdays, their birthdays, uh, making sure you take a deeper dive and hang out with their family and kids. And he went on and on and on to the, to the recalcitrance of the audience who just in the beginning of that was saying, you gotta be kidding me. In my day, you, you come to work with your shoes signed, you're lucky to have a job and you work your full eight hours and go. By the end of that counselor's meeting, they began to realize times are changing. So in terms of time management, um, we're living in a world where I think corporations are much more conscious of work-life balance. They, they recognize that, you know, if you're having children, give them more uh, maternity leave or uh, some, some companies allow to have a nurse, uh, 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 not nurses, but uh, uh, allowing them to, to leave their children there at work to take care of the kids. So, so there's so many disciplines now going on. There's, there's pay the same day. So with, with um, digital banking now, you can work eight hours and get paid for eight hours that day. All these different types of now entrepreneurial thinking that's going on in, 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 in work-life balance and time, work-life balance for human beings. For myself, I, I'm an avid exercise person because my dad was. But 
you know, a lot of people who stop exercising, like at my age, 20, 30 years they haven't exercised because they followed that wealth accrual plan, money, 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 money. And now all of a sudden they're, they're, they're completely overwhelmed at the notion of having that balance of exercise in their life um, because they're thinking, oh, I've got to work out for an hour. I've got to work out like I do as a 20-year-old. But, you know, I, I went to see Hamlet once in New York and sat next to Kirk Douglas, right? And here's the guy who played Spartacus in 1959 or 60. And I said, what do you do to stay in shape? You know, because Kirk was like in his 80s at the time. And he said, 15 minutes a day. So it really, to fit in exercise, which is critical, eating right and exercise is critical to that balance we need to sustain such an American lifestyle we have today. Because everyone thinks it's hip to be busy today. I'm, I'm trying to be like Aldous Huxley in the 1930s and seek a quiet garden and, and actually tell people, oh, I'm not busy. I have time for you. No, no, it's no big deal. Uh, but I think, I think you, you really need to incorporate exercise. I think more men can do yoga and, and really discipline themselves to prepare for later in life because we see many elderly people falling, hitting their head and dying. Uh, we lose our flexibility. I think any type of core sport, half an hour a day, is going to save you tremendous handicaps as you, as, you, as you get older. But also taking up intellectual sports, you know, reading. And, and there's so many hobbies we can do to have that balance, uh, to be uh, healthy citizens, you know. A hundred percent. Myself, I play ice hockey. Uh, in my spare time and always trying to uh, become a better athlete in that capacity and, you know, study the game and take lessons and, and I'm 35, but I'm still trying to master the game because it helps me, it hel helps me feel good about who I am. I love the process. I, I love the challenge. And then you get the physical fit benefits from pushing yourself, doing basically what is like equivalent to hit training high intensity interval training on the ice. Um, but to, in order to, to do things like that, I have to get my butt in the gym three or four days a week. I, I typically like to go early in the morning before work, uh, do my session, get a sweat going, have a shower, um, do a protein shake and then, you know, meditate and journal and, and then start my day. Um, with that routine, what it's taught me is that I have more focus. Mm -hmm. I have more energy and my emotional regulation is in more um, balance mm. uh, when I deal with challenges or, or problems, whether it's professional or personal. Um, I'm able to navigate my day more effectively, and um, and um, you know I, I don't I don't feel uh, overwhelmed with yeah. all the responsibilities in everyday life. Um, that's just what's really changed a lot in, in my journey is working out in the morning. Uh, I mean, you have to a whole day, day of work. Who wants to go to the gym and do more work? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, there's something you're, you're actually touching upon a new science, not a new yeah. science, but new studies in chronic biology. And, and, and I think it's so critical that no matter what age you are to sit down with yourself and say, when is my brain functioning at its highest acuity for certain things, thought, physical fitness. And mm -hmm. because there's no question, depending upon, depending upon age and the time of day, you know, I get up and I do more, my more intellectual reading in the morning because I have more acuity then. I work out, but at, when I get up, I do yoga sit-ups. I get the core done. Then I read, have breakfast and read. And then I go on to doing other things. And I always try to get my second workout in around 1030 because I know that's when my body's strength after a breakfast is that's most efficient. That's for me. But I'm conscious of times in the day that reflect where I can be at my optimum. That's chronic biology. Yeah. 
Beautiful, beautiful. So. Bringing the scientific uh, angle to it. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Uh, I want to pivot into um, coaching strategy for your business. Um, you have Octave 8. And from what I understand, it's teaching musicians how to start a career in the industry. Is that correct? Um, it's basically how to... Uh, I have a great affectation for classical musicians and young uh -huh. ones today that there's no question that man, quote-unquote, will always create music. It's, it's a self-justifying primal need. Mm. Man will do it because man has to do it. So we're going to have music schools. We're going to have conservatories of music. We're going to have graduates. And finally, I think today's teachers are dutifully and responsibly telling candidates for gra as graduates that there just aren't that many jobs out there, unfortunately, for classical musicians. So what can we do to keep classical music in the school systems as part of our education? How to market that intelligently and honestly, not your baby is listening to Mozart, he's going to become a good mathematician because he's listening to Mozart. That's how we used to market music and it was just, you know, fallacious. So the, the point here is that um, there are many soft skills that musicians learn learning music. For instance, these are the non-analytical skills. You have the ability to take criticism, analytical thinking, communication, time management, attention to detail. Uh, so many soft skills that are now prevalent and sought after by corporate companies in the industry world, in the business world. You, you look at all of the uh, um, uh, HR and, and LinkedIn, all the, the job descriptions, guarantee you'll see soft skills, huge. The ability to, to write intelligently, uh, speak intelligently. So in recognizing that, I developed uh, a series of training programs uh, from corporate leaders that I've worked with on teaching the rudiments of entrepreneurship while I teach how to parlay your soft skills into the world of industry. How do you take adaptability? How do you take those soft skills, that profile of your soft skills, and research industries that are seeking you as a, a profiler? And then training them A to Z on the interview process, how to, write in, how to uh, create a good LinkedIn account, how to create a strategic uh, resume, um, how to do all the Google Analytics to search for industries that um, correspond with your profile uh, as someone who's been a musician and a creative thinker. And I, I give them this entire six-week flagship course called Octavate uh, to give them the confidence where they know they can seize financial stability as a classical musician graduate, and then we teach them the skills on how to accelerate their musical career through my 30 years of experience in the entertainment business. What a wonderful program. Yeah. Wow. It's that, very intense. That's phenomenal. We, that's you phenomenal. know, I, I would like to mention we start, everyone, everyone in the program starts with this course called uh, Identity Towards Autonomy. And why that's important is because so many young people today, again, thrust into emulation. When you're a musician, it's like, I want to play like Yoga Ma. Okay, that's great. I mean, he's a marvelous cellist, but you're you. He's him. His story is different than yours. You know, when, when I think of all the great pop songs I loved as a kid, every one of them cut the mold. It, it, every one of them was original because they had the courage to think outside the box of what, was, what would be considered status quo. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I am a big practitioner of getting to your original purpose, getting to who you are as an individual. How do we do that? How do we create training programs to teach young musicians how to engage their unique self. And this was all triggered by uh, a conversation with Jackie Chan I had. And I, I, I was, whenever I work with superstars, I, I can't, I have to ask them, 
What is it that happened in childhood that made you who you are today? And Jackie said, well, I was born in Beijing, China to an acrobatic family. And then I saw the general, Buster Keaton starring in the general. And, oh, Buster uh, Keaton. Uh, legend. Legend. And Amazing. he fell in love with comedy. That's where he fell in love with comedy and filmmaking. And then in 1973, entered the dragon with Bruce Lee and fell in love with martial arts. And so I combined them all. And I just stopped. I went, wait a minute. And that was like more than illumination. That was a conductor of light. It was like you combined your themes from childhood. And in a very competitive world, Asian martial art actors, you developed you, a niche. He's a giant star in Asia. I mean, he's like Pavarotti in Italy. He's just a huge star. So that, that set me off on my original program, which was called Composing Success. And I would go to junior high schools and stand in front of a wind ensemble, a group of kids, and just start testing and tell, you know, giving them these assignments on the left-hand side of a page. Write down the themes in childhood that you love. I don't care if it's you know, making gelato, reading comic books, and playing the piano. And then on the right side of the page, combine three of the most interesting ones into your unique self. I mean, I've studied authors who have always the, 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 the theme of water in their novels. And you go back and you realize they were born on the beach. This interesting connectivity between childhood and, and the stability of themes into adulthood, how they shape our lives. If they're that impactful, and they're generally things we love to do. I mean, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, growing up in an Italian household, okay, cooking, or right, Catholicism, or playing the guitar, listening to opera and jazz. I mean, these things, you, you, you don't forget them, and they fuel your passion for life. But a lot of us lose or lack conscious in tracing those elements and maintaining them. This, their sense of maturity. Why, sh why should I read comic books? I'm 40 years old now, right? But when you study successful people, you find that they've taken those childhood themes and marshaled them into a significant personality. And, 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 and because they're so still in love with that child nature, they're extremely successful. So the identity course does that. It, takes, it has three exercises that, uh, that really tap into the topography of that person's soul, the chassis of their existence. It will be like if you study St. John of the Cross spirituality, 16th century Carmelite, he would say a proper analogy would be, um, if I'm gonna paint my car, strip the old paint and paint on the chassis. The paint will absorb into that metal better, right? That, that would be an appropriate analogy. We try to get to the core. So in, in this particular case, there's this young Japanese-American girl, and she was very shy. So after the Q&A, she came up to me and she said, Chris, I, I, I love, Mr. Kellyendo, I love what you're talking about. I said, well, what do you love to do? She said, well, I, I love um, romantic music. I love the piano. I love late 19th century piano music, and I love the human mind. And I said, well, let's combine it. What do you get? And, she, and we ultimately came up with the fact that most pianists, recitalists, would go on stage and play the Waldstein Sonata by Beethoven. No communication to the audience, play the three movements, walk off the stage, bow. And that is fairly routine with classical musicians and recitalists. And now she realized, oh, I can study what was going on in Beethoven's, if we have that information historically, I can study what was going on in his life, what, what made him write the Waldstein, Share that with the audience. Now you have a different communication. You're lessening the abstract nature of musical communication by explaining what the Wallstein is to the audience and then playing a movement. And so now you have a very different recitalist. There's this subtle paradigm shift based on the conscious bringing together of different themes and, 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 uh, that, that that particular student loves. And that's the basis of our, of our, of our, of our tra training programs for the academy, getting to that core self. Wow, wonderful. And we'll, we'll put the link to the Academy into the show notes so people can find and, and cool. uh, 
um, ask or submit any questions they might have. So when you were younger, you mentioned that your dad was a pretty big inspiration to you. Um, were there any musicians or I guess groups or, or um, musical acts that inspired you to keep playing music or that you kind of wanted to be like as a kid? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> West Montgomery, Charlie Christian. I mean, all the the two great black American geniuses who played the guitar. I mean, uh, we lost Charlie at 24 with tuberculosis. We lost a lot of black Americans with tuberculosis, but he was the first true genius on the guitar. Then my father, my father had a great intuition on what great music was. That was another great thing that my, my dad wasn't a great musician. He was a hobbyist at best, but he had a great intuition. So he would show me or play me Charlie Christian records. He played with Benny Goodman back in the early 30s in that famous 1936 Carnegie Hall concert where Charlie was given an amplifier and played and the guitarist for the band said to Benny you gotta you've gotta listen to this guy play guitar so when Benny looked at Charlie Christian he had no money so he was dressed he had like a green jacket a red tie yellow socks he looked like a clown so Benny said get him off my stage so they snuck him behind stage and had him play the guitar through an amplifier and and uh, the story goes then after the concert, they played till two or three o'clock in the morning. Benny and Charlie, but but people like that were a huge inspiration to me. The Black American jazz was very influential in my makeup as an individual. And I remember, I remember going to a club and playing in a club, and there was a Black American in this club. And this may have been a white man's club in that day, and his name was Charlie Moffat, and he was a very famous jazz drummer. What was unique about Charlie was he had four child prodigy sons, like myself in, in, in terms of guitar. But he, Charlie would pick me up in a station wagon and drive me into his neighborhood. And the doors were open and the whole neighborhood would come around to hear Charlie's kids and him play jazz, all improvised. And I would sit in the middle of them, the, this token white Italian-American kid. And that's how I learned jazz. He was a, an enormous influence on me. Yeah, that is so cool. So between my father's records, uh, my father's into my father would take off the Beatles, like the sheet music for the Beatles, and go listen to that passing to minus seven chord. Isn't that kind of interesting how they use that? It's like I, I go, I look back at those days <laughs> and I go, my dad, my dad is really intuitive. He's a very cool guy, you know. So. That's incredible. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. I was just listening to Miles Davis all night last Miles, night, uh, yeah. driving back from Thousand Oaks. Um, yeah, jazz just never gets old from that era. Um, but Chick Corea, Al Demiola, yeah. the, the Romantic Warrior, I mean, so many influences, Billy Cobham, that whole jazz fusion scene and, and the record industry back in the 70s was great because they, you know, they, they would launch, you know, 200 artists. Yeah. Like, and if, and if one turned golden, it would pay for the rest, right? Today, everything is just, it's, it's so different today. But there was so much experimentation going on in the 70s, so many great, unique hocus-pocus getting, getting signed, you know, to labels and allowing this remarkable cross uh, over music being created, this newfounded eclecticism that 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 uh, Mr. Bernstein was talking about in 1973 at his lectures at Harvard, the the great Norton lectures. Um, you know, he, he he wither music, and Leonard Leonard would say a, a new a new form of eclecticism, and and I miss it. I miss the 70s. It was a great time. Great time. I hope that you and I can do a, a pasta Italian uh, dinner <laughs> night here, and I can just. Dive Absolutely. Into your jazz catalog. <laughs> sure, man. <laughs> okay. It's it's happening. Um, fantastic. So, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, you mentioned as well that you were appointed by um, Pope John Paul II to uh, compose for a project for the Vatican. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty interesting 
story. Um, how did that come about for you? Well, I was infatuated with a beautiful, beautiful Italian woman, actually. <laughs> it's a true story, and with, with all respect to my... It always starts with a girl. <laughs> oh, it, it is a story that truly starts with a, with, with a girl. And, um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I was at UCLA, um, and I entered the foyer area, and, and there was a, a woman there, and, and uh, she was from Italy, from Milano, and... Um, we had uh, courted each other, and she was getting her doctorate in astrophysics um, through the Music Experimentation Center in San Diego. Uh, very unique, very unique person, really. Um, very intelligent. And she had discovered um, her own universe using a Petrinet's computer and developed um, and allowed us to hear what space sounded like from this universe. So she had literally uh, sampled it. So, uh, very ambitious person, and the point is, I, I flew to Milano, Italy, um, to engage her parents and to get to know the family more. Prior to dissension, a gentleman uh, behind the plane came up and noticed that my light was on. I, was, I had a Walkman in those days, listening to music I wrote for a Dallas show that we filmed in Paris. And uh, his name was Giorgio Gallo, and Giorgio uh, looked, he would, he'd be like a, 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 the Italian version of Colombo. You know, white trench coat, gruffy voice, bushy eyebrows, and he put on the Walkman, and, and he said, why, this music is magnificent. I'm going to make you famous in Rome. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm from Hollywood. I've heard that my whole life, you know. I'm going to make you famous. But he gave me his card, and he said, if things don't work out well in Milano, come to Rome. Things did not work out well in, in Milano. And I, I took the Stazione Centrale, the train, down to, to Rome. He picks me up. The next day, we're on a moped, going to the Uffici behind the Vatican archives, networking with his, with his network. And he had managed Liza Minnelli and Frank Sinatra in these giant spectacles in Rome, including Marvin Hagel, the boxer-turned-actor. Wow, So he incredible. was legitimate. It was just providence, absolute providence, that, I, that he would come up and sit down next to me. Um, so I met Don Vigilio Levy, a, a Jewish man turned Catholic, a Messianic Jewish man, who was the administrator, and he would commission painting, sculpture, and music for Pope John Paul II. And we had about a 10-minute audience, and then he had uh, asked me, he wanted me to be introduced to the director of this festival, uh, in, in the English translation would be The Encounters of Sacred Contemporary Music, which no American composer had ever been commissioned for before. And I met Sandro Gindro, and his assistant, Lorenzo Rossi, and played the pianoforte and also some of my music, went back to L.A. on March 3rd in 1992. I got the call from the Vatican that I was chosen for this festival uh, uh, to be the first American composer commissioned uh, via John Paul II for this, this festival. And, and my life changed. You know, and this, is, this ties into my early exposition about purpose, you know. And, and also diversity and also curiosity. I mean, I'm, I'm in Hollywood. I'm, I'm in a very good position where many composers all over the world would be envious of. And I, I get to go to Rome and, and be, you know, with my parents' forebears. And in the Vatican with, you know, it's an extraordinary experience. And, and uh, you know, it's a life-changing. It's an existential moment. It's an existential moment. I come back, call Henry. What do I do? And he said, I would pursue Rome, because that's your one-line resume. Leonard Bernstein had a West Side Story. You have what I eventually called the Mystic Saints. And I never looked back. I went forward with theatrical music as opposed to commercial film and television music. And um, at that time, 
And um, I was commissioned a second time in 95. I came back and my alma mater, UCLA, played both commissions. And in that audience was how I met Steve Binder, the legendary director. And he in invited me to his home in Oxnard. Uh, uh, and I sat down with him and we scaffolded an idea, which was to take the Vatican commissions, add more material, and have it as a Jubilee special year 2000 PBS special with Andrea Bocelli, Annie Lennox, singing the lead roles of some of the, uh, uh, of the characters of, of my Mystic Saint opera. Is there a way to, to access that uh, program today? Well, it, it never happened. I mean, mm. it, it, that was one of the great, uh, great probably the biggest uh, adversity moment in my life was okay. I had put everything that I could possibly put my own money, my own time into creating two more panels. So I had a two hour program. But at that time, PBS's model, business model was that you know, we'll finance things that we want to have exclusive rights to. After the, after the Japanese financial crisis, everything changed. Um, the appeal for new music for the church lessened because of the conservative financial conditions. Uh, PBS changed their model, so now I had to finance the thing and bring it to PBS for them to distribute. I panicked. I mean, uh, it, it was a, a very difficult moment. Uh, here I am. Who would not think that Providence was behind me? You know, this fluke commission and this great adulation. I came back and I was in the New York Times, the LA Times. It was, it was a big news, especially in the Italian communities. And um, it just didn't happen. I, I, didn't, I was not able to become the impresario that I had hoped I could be. So they had, there, a lot of rewiring had to take place. Another, another, I would call, you know, do you know the term dark night of the soul? I don't, but I do it, now. It, it's, it's a classic term for plateau periods that we face where the, the body may be willing to go on, but the mind is exhausted. It, it's the greatest moment we have in life where we learn more about ourselves. It's either something that happens where our, our moral rectitude is greatly challenged. We do something that essentially breaks our, our spirit uh, egregiously, maybe an immoral act. Um, and we have to get through that dark night. And uh, St. John of the Cross, one of the great Spanish mystics uh, in his spiritual canticle, it talks about the dark night of the soul, our black, these, these plateau periods in our spiritual path that we all face. And I think Protestants would, would be more analogous to calling it uh, born again. But as a, as a Catholic, I, I, I mean, I think we're born again numerous times. I mean, I think we have lots of plateau periods where we learn a great deal about ourselves from the mistakes we make. And this is a big mistake. I, investing your own money is a mistake. Um, because what happens is if you choose to invest the money of others, those others are going to seriously look at your product and discern from a true business point of view whether it's uh, applicable or not. And I, I think when you're caught up in your own id, your own self-purpose, which I was very galvanized to put this on the map. I mean, you could imagine how excited I would be. I mean, if I had successfully had launched this on St. Peter's Square <laughs> as a PBS special, I could become the next Leonard Bernstein. I was really galvanized. So um, it didn't happen. It was a great learning point. I mean, I, I learned a great deal, and it was dark. It was a very challenging period. Wow, there's so much uh, packed into that story. It's so beautiful and, and moving and, and powerful. Thank you for opening up and for uh, sharing that and being yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. You're welcome. Your path 
really requires a lot of leadership qualities and a lot of responsibility come with those leadership um, responsibility or a lot of responsibilities come with those leadership qualities. Um, do you, do you consider yourself a leader in that capacity? And, and what does leadership really kind of mean to you in the type of work that you do? Um, in leadership, effective leadership comes from experience and, and it comes from those failures, those mistakes you make. I, I mean, the challenge I have is being a teacher of the guitar is that I was a prodigy on the instrument. I didn't come from, um, how, would I, how would I say this, um, just the, the average student learning an instrument. They would, become, they would be a better teacher, uh, I think. Um, but where my teaching comes effectively is from the mistakes I've made. And it allows me to, to, to take an overview. My experience comes more in self-esteem. It comes in philosophy. It comes in purpose. It comes in being original. Uh, avoid emulation. Emulation is very important when you're young because that's what inspires us. You know, when I was 11, I heard Stravinsky's Le Sacre du Printemps, and I just wanted to write that. <laughs> How do you write that? So I wanted to write music like Stravinsky. And at some point, you cut the umbilical cord to that, and you say, okay, now I've got to take what I've learned from this great master in Beethoven and become an adjective myself. That music sounds like Caliendo. So to be an adjective in life is part of what our purpose is. And leadership is something that um, comes from tremendous experience. A four-star general is, is, you know, a 20-year-old is not a four-star general. I mean, you may say, you, you only see that in Alexander the Great, who was a genius, you know, and obviously if you look at his father and his background, you can see how this incredible leader became such a great leader at such a young, young age, Napoleon, another one. But by and large, leadership comes from, from experience and making many, many mistakes. And being able to look at those states empathetically and self-heal yourself. Because if you don't self-heal yourself, you can't look at people and guide them and lead them empathetically. Because leadership also means listening. You, 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 you have to have a, a very high uh, EQ to be a good leader. Uh, especially today, I think, because I think a lot of people, um, because of the way Western life is today, there's so much emulation. There's so much. Every, everybody's got a, a, a first prize, you know, whether it's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Instagram photos or YouTube. Or, you know, everyone's got to be number one, right? So there's this desire to emulate and say, if they're doing it, I can do that too. And I would, if I'm, as I'm a teacher, I'm always looking for the original self. Don't emulate be unique and let's and let's focus on tapping into that unique self which takes a lot of courage so we're aiming creatures right human beings have an aim and when you know what your purpose is each day manifests manifests itself and, and is supercharged with meaning knowing that the chaos and malevolence that's inherent in this world that's going to challenge you you will get over it if you know what that purpose is and your aim is the highest moral purpose moral good so that may be you know manufacturing these shoes you know you've done your due diligence these are unique shoes and they're going to service the community and they're going to make people feel comfortable whatever that aesthetic is and knowing that that's your purpose every day you're supercharged with getting to that purpose and supercharged with getting over the problems that will come knowing that each problem solved gets you closer to that goal right because we're aiming creatures so as leaders i think it's great that we're living in a culture today where 
Tony Robbins, who started this really, he was the first person to separate from athletic coaching and says, well, what about coaching in business? What about coaching in, in all walks of life? I think, it's, I think it's great to see that a lot of young people today are saying, you know, I'm, I'm not really gifted entrepreneurship, but I, I want to do something and maybe I need help. Let me hire a coach and they'll find a means to do it. Uh, I think it's great when we're, we're more open to counseling today. As uh, the challenge is finding a good leader, finding a good coach to, 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 you know, to understand who you are and where your path's going. Beautiful. And I love the undertone of, of the morality um, yeah. uh, foundation being a big part of that aiming point um, to kind of help you understand, you know, the impact of what you're doing and why you're doing it um, versus getting caught up in the self and the ego and the money and uh, all the other kind of things that come along with that journey. Well, to add to what you're saying, do you remember Field of Dreams? Of course, yes, Kevin Costner. Right, now let's just talk about that. The philosophy there was, if you build it, it will come. Musicians have to embody this philosophy because it is about us. So I'm creating a concert. I've got to go out there and get the venue. I've got to practice. I've got to choose the music. I, 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 okay? When you're a businessman or a woman, and you're creating a product, let's say you're, you're gonna make helmets and you're manufacturing helmets. All right, you have got a lot of, do a lot of due diligence before you can actually walk into your manufacturing plant and hire the right people and get the right equipment to process and manufacture that helmet and distribute it and market it. And you may have investors and shareholders and you have to do your research beforehand. In music, it's a field of dreams. You know, it's living on the edge of the periphery. That's why people find creative people so fascinating because their stories are really unique to them. You know, uh, it, you may walk into a guy who's making helmets and go, well, this is pretty boring, right? Isn't, you, know, you know, I did my business plan, my financial plan, my operations plan. I did Google Analytics. I checked out my competition. I did all these things beforehand. And then I found investors who believed in me and we built this plant and, you know, we're growing 10% methodically every year. It, it, wow, it's great. It's really not as fun as... Perhaps, you know, me talking about the Vatican commissions, you know, and trying to get this thing published by PBS, right? But it's, those are the two different philosophies here. So you, 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 musicians then have to now try to say, okay, I understand that I'm living on the edge of the periphery. I, I'm, 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 I, I, I'm living in somewhat of an abstract world and trying to create a tangible good. How do I pay my fixed and variable costs by becoming a performer, by becoming a musical entrepreneur? when my personality is built on a field of dreams philosophy and it's and it's at times emotional and whimsical and very different you know our, our attention to detail is is just wired differently because we don't have those analytical skills some of us do granted but many of us don't have that left side of the brain saying hold on think this through because making a cd is easy selling it is another another road Right. So, so my question to you is yeah. if a musician wants to get started in the business, mm -hmm. but doesn't have any previous experience professionally, but they're very talented, they don't have a band yet, but they're just kind of their own, you know, product. Uh, where, what are three things they can do to get started today? And what type of business? What type of musician? I mean, what, what is that? Oh gosh. Um, I didn't really think about that. <laughs> right. I mean, we have but, to think about, um, Okay. Or let, well, you want to talk, want to, if, if a composer wants to get into the film business, uh, if uh, a performer who wants to become known as a performer is 
Right, right. Which yeah. the, I mean, there, there's quite a different. Uh, a musician wants to. Uh, so, so it sounds like the first step is figuring out what direction you want to go with your gift. Yeah, that probably starts with formal education. It, it probably, for musicians, it probably starts in the teenage years. Hmm. I mean, I mean, I'm unusual starting guitar at so young, but I, I knew what I wanted to do. I was eight years old. My father said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to compose operas like Verdi. He goes, compose operas like a Caliendo. <laughs> My father right away, be you. <laughs> so he had instilled that. So a lot of people, I, I mean, there's a great deal of young people today who still don't know what to do. I, I got one. Uh, sure. So let's say somebody's a very talented vocalist mm-hmm. and they have so much inside them. They want to express. They want to, they want to record it. Uh, they need to find musicians. They need to find a band and they want to tour. They want to, they want to have that, that experience in the business touring, um, you know, of course making the music videos and all that stuff, the marketing aspect, but they just want it. They're a very talented singer. What would be the first step for that person to do to get to the next step? Well, I, I would test their voice in the marketplace. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, we have such technology today. It's extraordinary what we can do in terms of archiving, you know, our, our, our singing, if you're a singer and uh, developing social media platforms to share those video bites, you know, with an audience. But to get, I mean, singers today, I would encourage them to rent out a church, which really won't cost you much at all, a donation, or an art gallery, somewhere where there's a, a good, uh, a natural acoustical environment and I would invite family members and invite friends to hear you sing and get the practice of singing in front of people get over any anxieties or fears develop your memory skills to memorize your program um, getting a pianist right start simple but encourage exposing the gift to the public and then take data you know what does the public think about my singing one of the big mistakes Steven Spielberg made when he made Hook was he invited all of his friends to see it on the lot and all of them, because they got in for free, loved it. It's great. It's a wonderful movie. And it bombed at the box office because, frankly, it's not one of his better jobs, right? Not one of his better movies. So it's very important that when, if you're a singer and you, you, you want to, you need the adulation, you need the confidence to rudder that ship, is to get it in front of an audience and make sure your audience is personal friends, of course, but also friends of friends of friends. Now, they're not too close to you. They're not going to, you know, they're going to give you some definite considerations that are that are honest right honest feedback and a, as you do this you'll discover that your audience begins to navigate you in a natural way on your next steps you know you've got to expose the talent to people and see how the people react to you i i think that would be a very very strong way to go about it because uh, you know as a performer i've been paid five thousand dollars to play i've been paid nothing to play but i've I always teach in my teaching programs the concept of free. It's very powerful. As you get known as a singer, and, and this happens even in college. I mean, even at a young age, singers were blessed with talent can be easily recognized and adulated uh, by their, their local neighborhood or, or uh, fans. Um, but as, as you grow and get older, you'll begin to sing or with other people in venues where you may not get paid, but it's great exposure where you can develop strategic alliances and your network. That's something that you know a lot of people say, like tenors today, Pavarotti, they, introduced, they, 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 they uh, interviewed him on his last days and said, are there any more Pavarotti's coming? And he said, no. And he said, why? He goes, because today the tenor gets paid $3,000 for their first performance, and then the agent wants them to get paid $15,000. 
It's just all about money today, Pavarotti said. And Pavarotti died. He was still taking lessons in his 60s, Pavarotti. Never stopped educating his voice. So I think, I think you know, you need to, if you're a singer, take a deep dive into the biographies of other singers. Read, read Tony Bennett's autobiography. It's an amazing account. For instance, Tony Bennett says, you know, he grew up with Count Basie, who gave him his first break. Count Basie had a very minimalistic improvisational style at the piano. Just a note here, a trickle there. And then he would hit the keys really hard like a swazando. So Tony Bennett says, that's how I developed my vocal technique, was listening to Count, Sol- Count Basie's solos. And sure enough, if you hear Tony Bennett sing, one of, his, one of his hallmark approaches to singing is all of a sudden he'll belt a note out. So reading biographies of great singers, um, listening to great singers, are going to be very, very critical in the development of that particular person. I mean, biographies are critical. I mean, I couldn't... I mean, I'm reading uh, the autobiography of Ben Franklin right now. Just to learn how a young little boy became who he became is, is to me, important reading, you know? Absolutely. I think Ben Franklin is one of the most interesting and incredible human beings of all time. He was a guy at 12 years old, right? He was a wordsmith. He wanted to be a wordsmith. So he... Well, he would take a newspaper, an article that he liked, and he called them hints. I take hints of the article, write them on a separate page, and then from the hints, I write my own version of the article and compare the two. That's how he developed his ability to write. Isn't that fascinating? I just find that fascinating. It is. You know, it's like <laughs> 12 years old. I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Anyway, yeah. read biographies. Very important. Beautiful, beautiful. I, before we uh, started, you were sharing how you, you met your wife. And yeah. I w- would love to, if you want to share that story, I thought it was a pretty uh, beautiful story. Ah, it's uh, very, very, very nice of you to do that. And uh, very easy for me to, to emulate my beautiful wife. Um, I was asked to teach uh, at, um, in Arizona, to, uh, two, two master classes and a recital. And at this event, bust to this location were other schools and other musicians to and who were preparing for, prepared my music for performing in front of me and allowing me to coach them. And I was uh, coaching a group um, that uh, was the um, the students of Dr. Brian Luce, who is professor of flute at University of Tucson and University of Arizona Tucson. And the uh, the piece is called Swing and Sing. So. It was a product of the 1930s swing era, and half the group sang, and when they weren't singing, they would play swing and sing. And it was for like, I don't know, 20 flute players. And they, so Brian had them dress up in zoot suits. So if you could imagine like tuxes with ties and hats on, and there was this just beautiful woman in the back playing bass flute, I think, and I couldn't take my eyes off her. And I remember telling myself on the podium while I'm conducting, you're a teacher right now, you know, respect the students respect your profession and so afterwards um we talked and i i asked if you don't mind if i if, if i take a, a photograph taken of us so this gentleman took the photo and um i said i said my adieu and went back home to los angeles and i didn't think anything of it i i um, so you didn't you didn't make any move no the first time you saw her none at all i i i was so taken I didn't make any move, and I just said, I, I, in, my, in, in my mind, imagination, I, um, I wasn't yet, it, it seemed to me impossible that I could, I could attract this young lady. I, I, it, that's how powerful the feeling was. And, you know, I, I was certainly, you know, old enough to have been around the block. It was like, but I never had this kind of feeling before. 
And uh, so when I got home, uh, 20th, Century, 20th Century Fox had called me and gave me this enormous summer project that kept me at a piano for three months. I had to write like 280 minutes of music in three months' time. It was like, um, and I was shackled to the piano. I totally forgot about it. So I was able to get the music done on time and submitted the masters to 20th Century Fox. And I realized that I still had time to attend the National Food Association Convention, which is the convention that I had appeared at a number of years as a publisher selling music to the flute community. And so I go to the convention and I pick up my buddy, Mike. I call Mike. I said, let's get a minivan. Let's tr- it was in Albuquerque. Let's try. I just want to see the country. I, I want to get away from the piano. And so we drove down there, packed up my, the van with tons of my music to sell. And um, I'm, I'm there and I'm, it's a Thursday and I have to get food for my booth. My, my, the, the, the employees at my booth. And I go upstairs and I hear my music emanating from the foyer area. And I'm thinking, that's my music. So I'm drawn to it. And I'm realizing it's, it's, it's not the best performance in the world. And I turned the other way and someone, of course, saw me and that's Christopher Caliendo. Come on back, you know, take a picture with the group. So when the music ended, I was escorted down the staircase and at the base of the staircase is me, the, the conductor and, and one of the board members. And if you look at that photo, which was taken at the very top, there is Kristen smiling, this, this, Beautiful smile. And we hadn't yet seen each other since three, four months ago. Nor have you spoken No, n- not a word. Uh, not a word. The photograph mm-hmm. was never sent to me by the gentleman that took it. So anyway, I walked up the staircase and to my, and I could have made a left or a right. And the good Lord had me cope, make a, make a right. I walked up the staircase and there, there Kristen was, you know, nonchalantly putting her flute back together again in the corner, just looking just stunningly beautiful and, did, Gen- did she gentle. See you? I, that's such a good question. <laughs> I, I feel like she's on the. We know you saw she's her. She's on the. She see I, you? I saw her and uh, I, I walked. There's my New York. I saw her. I, 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 I walked over to her and I forgot her name. So I just said, you know, would you have dinner with me? And she said. So you just came out with that? I just came out with that. Wow. Would you have dinner with me? Wow. And, and she, she shook my hand and she said, I'd love to. And that's what's on my wedding ring. I'd love to on the, on the inside of the it, question so. that changed your life. Huh? <laughs> Good man. Good oh, man. it changed my life forever. And like I said, at the time, I didn't know if I had a shot in the dark, but that's when I, I really got very religious about it. I just said, Lord, it's in your hands. And, um, we had dinner that Saturday night and I had bought, uh, uh the, this, the, uh, the vendor next to me at the trade show made ju- flute jewelry. So they took parts of a flute and made jewelry out of it. So I, th- oh my goodness! So it was these oh. these pendant or earrings that I. And so when she went to the bathroom, I slipped it on. I slipped it on her, uh, her dinner oh, plate. Oh, Christopher! And wow! I would never wow. have done this with anybody else before. <laughs> she came back that and sat down, move. and yes. you know what she said to me? Small gifts. Uh, what? Are you, oh, Kristen, please excuse me if I don't get this right. Small gifts. Uh, fear, um, I'm afraid of small gifts, or uh, uh-huh. to, to the extent that she, I, I thought, oh, she probably has a boyfriend, and this is a bad move. Oh. I'm too forward, you know. <laughs> but she opened it up, and she realized it was it was flute jewelry, which was cool, and uh, it was a good move. So, <laughs> so she accepted it, and I was grateful. And then she made a call to her parents from the convention. And on the way back from Albuquerque, I got an invitation from her family to stop by and say hello and meet the family. And that's when I knew I had a chance. And like, like in an old-fashioned family, they all met me outside their home. They all gathered in a line. And uh, Michael and I were invited into their home, and there she was. Wow. What a beautiful and story. I, I was smitten. 
14 years of marriage now with a beautiful boy and uh, life changed. Wow, incredible. Yeah. She's an incredible person, my wife. Yeah. You're a lucky man. <laughs> <laughs> we will be right back with 20 Degrees Deeper into the Labyrinth with our leader, Christopher Caliendo, after a word from our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, One Education, One World, a Section 501c3 certified nonprofit on a mission to bring quality education to children in the rural parts of the world that do not have access to schools. OEOW gives these children quality education by providing them with an educational space, curriculum, supplies, qualified teachers, and leadership in underserved communities. The focus is to inspire hearts and minds of all children while fostering their social, psychological, and spiritual well-being. If you'd like to learn more on how to support OEOW and bring quality education to underprivileged children, please visit www.oneeducationoneworld.org forward slash donations. Help us make a positive change in our world and our children's lives. Education is the right of every child, even a child far away, living in dire conditions and far to reach places. We would like to thank our sponsor, Imagine Collective, your premier experience agency, leading California's central and southern regions in event planning and management, digital and experiential marketing, brand partnerships, and more. Serving all coastal and inland communities from Monterey County down to San Diego County in the great Golden State. One of my favorite things about Imagine Collective is they donate a portion of their proceeds to a trusted charity of your choosing for each service they provide. Contact them today at 323-207-9572 and visit their website for more information at theimaginecollective.com. Mention Leaders Labyrinth and enjoy 20% off your first service. Imagine Collective. Let's collectively imagine how to make our world a better place through the everyday work we do together. We would like to thank our sponsor, Malibu Audubon, a car collective known for its unique events in Southern California. Hosting epic and beautiful scenic group drives in Malibu and producing concerts in LA. But there's a lot more to it than just these events. Beyond its popular line of apparel, Malibu Audubon is well known as a curator for some of today's biggest music videos, TV shows, and other productions, sourcing and handling rare special vehicles for all types of projects. You can learn more and join Malibu Audubon at MalibuAudubon.com or simply visit at MalibuAudubon on Instagram. We are here with Christopher Caliendo going 20 degrees deeper into the labyrinth where I ask our leader 20 design questions to get to know them even better on a mental, spiritual level. So Christopher, question number one. How do you start your day? Do you have any morning routines or non-negotiables? Yeah, 35 minutes of yoga, 200 sit-ups, 
Uh, same breakfast every morning, and then I dive into work. How would you describe your favorite quality about yourself? Curious. What characteristic do you value most in other people? Empathy. If you could travel back in time to any era, what time period would you want to live in? Late 19th century. What is a book that had impacted your life or that you would recommend to others? 12 Rules of Life, Jordan Peterson. Love Jordan Peterson. He's amazing. Yep. If you could sit on a bench and have a deep discussion with anyone alive or deceased, who would it be and why? Countless people. Um, Beethoven would be way up there. Um, the greatest composer that ever lived. Just to understand the incidents in his life that separated him from writing for the aristocracy and just choosing to write and lead the humanistic movement uh, and, and the rise of the independent thinker. I'm just an explosive human being. I, I'm just to be in a room with him would be extraordinary. Beautiful, beautiful. What is one of the most important lessons you learned in a relationship? Listen, my wife taught me that. I'm still learning how to do it better. Women don't want a solution. They want to be listened to. And that, that was a tough one for me. I'm getting better at it and the results are improving because I'm getting better at it. I'm learning how to be empathetic and that, that was a tough one. Thank you for sharing that. What is a powerful piece of knowledge or advice that someone gave you that shifted your perception on life or yourself? Segue il tuo corso ma di i genti by Dante. Uh, follow your course and let others talk. Brilliant, thank you. What is your definition of success? The recreation of reality. <laughs> what, what I do for, for, for uh, the puzzling nature of my life. Uh, no, I would, I mean, but maybe that has attributes to other people. The recreation of reality according to man's metaphysical value judgments. You know, f for me, that means in art, how do I take my experience with you right now and transform it into music from a cognitive faculty to the widest metaphysical abstractions into perceptual awareness, what ultimately people hear from the music created at this moment. If people do that in, in all walks of life, it, it actually does resonate. Uh, how do you, we all recreate reality according to how we perceive it. And what we want to recreate is a fundamental nature of being an aiming, an aiming creature and tying into purpose. But that is an abstract way of answering your question, but that seems to be the path I took. That's a beautiful answer. Beautiful. Thank you. Do you have a daily mantra or a philosophy on life? Um, I mean, uh, in business, it would be focus brings velocity. You, you clearly, if you focus on something long enough, it, it, it expedites and accelerates, um, the goal, the purpose. Um, if there's a philosophy for me personally, as an artist, it would be, um, look into self. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, look into one's own art through the dark nights towards, you, towards higher consciousness. So, so basically what that would mean is I do not succumb to the commercial aspect of music, writing what the people want. I have an affinity, a proclivity. I have, I, I'm in tune with a higher fidelity. 
that comes from non-corporeal nature. I, I, um, so I'm, I'm kind of blessed in a sense with this desire to work on my craft, to have a better understanding of myself through art. And, and that is relevant to, to, to my need you know, in terms of what I, what, I, what I do to reach my highest state of consciousness. So, so that I'm trying to figure out, because I know that the, the mystical formula for life would be uh, find union through the darkest nights of the soul towards God. Find, to find union with God would be the ultimate spiritual quest. But in art, it is, it is a, 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 quest, a, a quest that starts with the self through the writing of that artwork to its most deepest fundamental nature towards higher consciousness. That's, that's really what I'm all about. Poetic and powerful. Thank you. Why do you think we're here as a human species? As an individual, I mean, I would think that we're all born broken and the goal is to work on ourselves to its, towards our highest moral rectitude and purpose to become as perfect as we can as broken creatures, um, to find union with our Creator. I mean, I really believe that. Um, you know, I'm a Christian man, so the, I, ideally for me, it's it's using the the the, the plausits of, of Christ and the lessons and learn uh, morality, morals, and principles, and and try to heal myself through my own brokenness and to to find union with with God. You know, towards the end of my life. Um, while, while doing that, I try to take the muse that God gives me, this, this high fidelity I hear in my head, which I believe comes from the divine, and, and I'm, I'm blessed to be a conduit for others to hear God's imaginings in my head, you know, um, to, what, to, to others. That's my, that's my dividend. But as human beings, we're here to procreate. We're here to continue the legacy of, of life and, uh, and pass that legacy on to our children. Thank you. Beautiful answer. If reincarnation is real, what animal would you want to be in your <laughs> next life? That's a weird question after the answer to the other one, since I don't <laughs> believe in reincarnation. But uh, what animal would I like to be? Oh, Mike, what a strange question. Um, I'm, why wouldn't I want to come back as a human again? I, I can't imagine I coming back as a can't deer. I can't. So this is a fun question. It's yes. one of those bizarre questions. And it's live. Okay. Um, hmm. I never thought of that before. What's the first animal that comes to your mind? I'm trying to think of one of the most <laughs> intelligent ones, the dolphin or something. Uh, dolphin would be cool. Yeah, King Charles Spaniel. That's <laughs> 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 such a bizarre question. Uh, I hope our audience is laughing with us. Uh, uh, what animal? Gee. I mean, you could be a rhinoceros. You know, clearly, there are you many types of... You could be a tiger. You know, you can be a T-Rex. Uh, no, <laughs> extinct or extant. Uh, <laughs> T-Rex works. All right, you're a T-Rex. You're, you're a bloodthirsty. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of my son. Bully who goes around and eats innocent creatures. Uh, you know, awesome. I'm going to ask that question to my son. See what he says. See what he says. Yeah, because he'll probably answer right away. You know, see if he picks a T-Rex too. <laughs> what What is one quote that has re resonated profoundly with you? Oh, I I I would. I would absolutely say the one by Dante. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just such a powerful, powerful quote. Um, there's also, you know, um, what is the quote? There's by Don one. There's Dante? one from my mother that stayed with me. A tavola non si vecchio mai, which means at table no one grows old, which is beautiful. So when we have dinner, 
when when you have dinner with family and friends, life is long. It's not short because the quality of the time is deep. So a tavola, at table, non si vecchio mai. No one grows old. Wow, beautiful. And beautiful. Nice. Yeah, it's from my nice. mom. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was, I was also asking, what is the quote from Dante, for those who don't know? Oh, segui il tuo corso ma lascia di i genti. Uh, follow your own course and let others talk. Beautiful, beautiful. Again, originality. Yeah, originality. Follow your original path. I love it, love it. What is one of the most powerful investments you have made with no money? Writing my own music. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I can't tell you, again, the concept of free. I mean, you, as an artist, you're going to have to do a lot of things for free to develop um, attention, um, advocacy. It's just part of the artist's journey. You know? If there is one word that comes to mind that sets your soul on fire, what word would that be? Kristen, my wife's name. That's really sweet. I, I can. That's I mean, so just, sweet. Just, just, just comes up right away. If you had a chance to meet younger Christopher as a child and share a piece of wisdom of what you now have learned to be true in life, what wisdom would you give to your younger self? Uh, don't be arrogant. <laughs> I mean, if you're blessed with a prodigious gift, I mean, don't, yeah. don't be arrogant. I, I would like to take back some of those moments. Yeah. When you think of a great leader, who is the first person that comes to your mind? Ah, Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. Yeah, most, certainly one of the most influential and admired presidents of the 20th century. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, mm. Thomas Jefferson, the founding fathers, uh, Pericles, uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, I mean, uh, it's just, there's quite a few of them, you know, but uh, in, terms of, in terms of leadership and especially political leadership. Um, no, just leadership in general. Leadership in general. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what? How could you not put Jesus Christ on that platform? I mean, what? What a leader, right? Um, someone who, you know, literally is a martyr, dies for their beliefs. Um, but, but um, I would say during the most difficult times, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. George Washington had a new country. Abraham Lincoln had the Civil War. I mean, you, great presidents come from trying times. You know. Um, um, I'd have to, I'd have to put um, Teddy Roosevelt up there too. Just, um, um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few, right? I mean, That's a great list. That's a yeah, great team. You Pericles, incredible what he did mm -hmm. for Greece. Uh, one of the great political leaders. Um, I mean, it, it, Persian, Persian leaders. I mean, um, mm, Darius. Absolutely. There were tyrants back then. I mean, tyrants not in the tyrants not in the way we define tyrants today, but who did remarkable things for their country. Napoleon, I mean, there, there are good aspects to people and there are bad aspects, but to a large degree, even, even uh, Mussolini was an incredible leader, but he made, a bad, he made a bad choice in life. But he did remarkable things for Italy. But, you know. So great leaders come with great controversy too. You know. Absolutely. What, what is your greatest fear? Um, avoiding the truth. Yeah, cowardice. I'm at a stage in my life where, you know, here I am talking about purpose and I'm, I'm kind of the victim of my own thoughts because as, as you know, I've worked in the commercial banking vertical for many years to support my family because I made decisions based on my own art form being true, uh, untainted by commercialism and, uh, 
staying true to my craft means so much to my spiritual nature and my spiritual nature has overridden my tact for other aspects of my life that could use work-life balance, for example. So the lessons I'm sharing with you are based on the mistakes I've made from these lessons. Um, but right now I'm at the edge of the periphery where I'm saying, you know, I really want to go back to music 100% and take that dive again after I have provided my family a certain period of time of wealth management and wealth safety. And, and I'm facing that plateau, a new plateau that's coming up and saying, okay. And uh, I'm happy to say that I've done the research. I know what I need to do. But it does, I will, take the, I will tell the audience you have here that it does take faith as well as practicality, as well as diligence, um, as well as strength of character to do the Jordan Peterson thing, which is, if we can summate Jordan in a, in a very simple way, is that if you choose not to follow your absolute purpose for the sake of the practical aspects of life, which makes sense, you will suffer years of stagnation and pain because, you know, how many Americans go to work today and do what they don't like to do to support their families because they're afraid. Jordan says, face those fears, make those tough decisions, follow your purpose, what Joseph Campbell called your sacred fire, your sacred bliss, and the years of stagnation will be greatly minimalized. So wouldn't it be worth it to suffer for two years rather than a lifetime? And that's Jordan. That's Jordan's intellect pushing through and compelling you. And I'm facing that today. I've got to make that Jordan Peterson decision. Powerful. What is your greatest version of happiness? Oh, being with, being with my wife and my son. Uh, my son doing cannonballs, you know, in the pool and filming him in slow motion. <laughs> It's always family, right? I mean, I mean, I could do great things with music, move people, and I have, and and it's 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 tremendously incredible experience to, you know, go to the Hollywood Bowl and have your music played after John Williams. You know, it, it, yes, it, it's it's uh, you wouldn't sacrifice it for the world, right? But when I'm asked that kind of a question, wife, son, wife, son, wife, son, it's really what matters in life. You have such yeah. a such a good heart. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful answer, absolutely. Family's number one. To our audience and the people listening, how can they get involved or provide support for your causes? Oh, well, I mean, for those of you who are interested in, in uh, my music or, or my teachings or studying with me, then there's the website, you know, www.christophercaliendo.com. There's also www.2tacademy.com. And the, it's the number two, the letter T, but it's a play on words. Uh, I, I love words, but tutti in Italian, T-U-T-T-I, means everyone. So everyone's academy. So, uh, but that's the, it's the number two letter T, academy.com. And, and that's where my training programs are. And, and you can study with me privately or just download the training programs. They're all automated. Fantastic. And we'll include that in the show notes as well so you can uh, contact ah, Chris. kind of you. Thank you. This is the part of the show called Messages to Mankind. And what this is, it's a hypothetical question I ask all of our leaders. And the question is this. If the whole world had suddenly stopped to listen to one message from you, and you are reaching every single human being on the planet, no matter where anyone in the world is located, they can all understand you. And you got to carry forward this one message 
to all of humanity to help make an impact? What would be your message to mankind? Well, you know, given today's t terrible themes that are focusing on social injustice, I, I can't help but think that to embrace, a, to embrace everyone you meet. If you're going to make an opinion about something, don't make it impulsively. People have different opinions in life. And I find as I get older, I'm, I'm like slightly right of moderate. Because if you have opinions and you're strong about them, I want to study that opinion before I come to my own conclusion. And I think if the world did this, it would be a much better place. Much better place. Too much of our education is based on hearsay. It's based on the opinions of others, and you get swayed up into that opinion. And, you know, whether, you know, I, I'm, not saying, I'm, not going to, I'm not saying whether I like or dismiss Obama, but for example, the French minister, I think the prime minister of France said, it's not the people who voted for him. It's... I'm sorry, it's not, it's not Obama who's at fault here. It's the people who voted for him. That, that was a remark he made. Now, the challenge with that remark is, is that, you know, I find a lot of people on Facebook too, so much of that con the conversation that I see is based from hearsay or it's impulsive. It's not meant through studying someone else's ideologies. But I think it's really, really critical. Uh, if you're going to make a point about someone else's opinion, study that opinion first. Have an educated reaction rather than an immediate reaction. And that will take a lot of the dissemination we have about culture and social injustice and race and color. And I think that will, that will certainly help assuage those fears and predilections and hatred and animosity and acrimoniousness that we have about other people. I'm, I'm stunned living today in, in this world. Uh, as a kid who learned jazz from black musicians, an Italian kid, yeah, I mean, when you're a musician, there's no, so, you, there's no social injustice. You're playing with all kinds of people. It's beautiful about music. I mean, I'm, I'm so stunned at what I'm seeing today. So I, I, I didn't mean to go in that. I guess uh, it's interesting that I went in that, that particular area, but I think education is critical today that if you hear someone else's opinion, stop. Learn about their opinion before you pass judgment on them. I think that's, that's a, that can go for anybody in the world. Such a beautiful and right? I mean, impactful um, response. I think the challenge with us is we're emotional creatures. And our emotions are very powerful. And we lose clarity on the ripple effects of our response, our reactions, not responses. I think a response is when you take time and you evaluate how you're going to um, address the issue, the particular issue, but a reaction is just more instinctive, impulsive, and then creates more damage in a situation that's already got some level of uh, dis destruction going on. Um, I mean, that's why I was so yeah. grateful for working in the banking industry because you can't afford to be that way. I mean, <laughs> in banking, you know, you're in accounting, whatever. But, but the point is that you learn how sure. to be measured, how to be analytical, how to listen better when you work in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. And I implore musicians to work in the corporate world, work in telemarketing. I mean, you're already gifted at storytelling. You'll be a natural telemarketer. You'll be very good at sales. That's a great job to get when you're early. And, and some of these telemarketing divisions and banks pay very, very, very well. I remember working 18 hours a week. I was netting 3000 a month just playing on the phones. And I had plenty of time for music. But it was a way I got security uh, during lapses when there wasn't much work. 
Uh, so well, um, yeah, I, I I totally agree, and I, I totally understand being in the corporate world myself. And yeah, I think the emotional component of being human. I think part of the journey here is we need to learn how to master that part of ourselves um, and understand how powerful and how beautiful it is. Because every part of us is really magical, and and so is that emotion. But when that emotion is not intelligently regulated, um, it can become very um, destructive and. You know, oh, yeah. I think wealth and, and happiness really comes down to how well are those relationships in your life. Yeah, my wife, who's much wiser than me and younger than me, said something about child rearing that, you know, I grew up in a very, very different environment regarding child, child raising and child behavior. And, but she said to me, to our young boy, um, there was a moment when I chastised him in words that were poorly chosen that broke his spirit. And maybe I was trained that way as a kid. That's my point. But he, Kristen said to me, never, you know, if, if, if our son does an act that is egregious in nature and you want to correct him, correct the problem, not the child. The problem is, you know, it's, it's don't crush the spirit of the child. And I, I just hit me. It really, really hit home. And I'm getting much, much better at that. And I think for a lot of parents who... Can, can think like this, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Why'd you do that? And that, that crushes your spirit. Let's take that a look. That just at, made me feel bad, even though it wasn't even about yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's like, but it's, absolutely. But then you take yeah. an approach and say, son, now you just did that. Do you think that was a good decision mm -hmm. or a bad decision? Right. Ask a question. And then the child, like Christian always says, it was a bad choice, mommy. Mm. Okay. So why do you think that was a bad choice? Ask questions. And the healing occurs and it doesn't crush the spirit and scar the, the child, right? Wow. But I learned that through being a parent, and that affected my relationships with other people. I started using that same philosophy, the same approach. Yeah, so, uh, and that's from parenthood. And in the corporate world, we spoke about being a better listener. I mean, you're dealing with millions of dollars. Other people's stories that are more important than yours. And musicians, it's all about us, right? It's our story. So we really, to go into an environment and train yourself about thinking about other people's stories, that's gonna affect your music too and your relationship with other musicians in leadership roles such as conducting or being first chair of a chamber orchestra. Yeah. Anyway. Beautiful, beautiful. Christopher Caliendo, I would like to honor you for your incredible breadth of passion, the beauty in your heart where your music is born from your creative genius, the harmony you have brought to humanity globally through your life's work of composition and music, and the courageous tenacity for being someone who gives by leading others to pursue their passions in music and business and helping them create a life of their dreams. And ultimately for showing the world the possibilities of believing in yourself. So thank you, Christopher, for your honesty and your kindness today and for joining us in the labyrinth. Oh, you're very, very welcome, Michael. You're a rare young man. <laughs> it's just a pleasure to be with you. I'm so glad we're friends. Thank you, Christopher. It's, it's an honor, and um, I look forward to having a spaghetti night with some jazz music um, sometimes. Linguini and Clamps, <laughs> the best you'll ever have. Sign me up. My mom and dad are smiling right now, I assure <laughs> Thank you for joining us in the labyrinth today with our leader, Christopher Caliendo. To stay up to date on all the amazing things Christopher is bringing to the world, you may visit his website at ChristopherCaliendo.com. 
and for his Musicians Business Academy, visit 2tacademy.com and subscribe to his YouTube page by searching keyword Christopher Caliendo on YouTube. We hope that today's interview ignites sparks of inspiration, unleashes your imagination, and proves that progress comes from creation. For we have the power to create our own reality, as the price of anything in life is the amount of life you are willing to exchange for it. Awaken the leader within, and remember to ignite your light. Your light.